This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by the Mariachi Ghost, live at Times Change, January 19. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm here with my very special guest today. Jorge Requena Ramos. Um, I will not roll my R's as eloquently as Jorge has, but uh, he's a filmmaker and a writer and a director and a uh, burgeoning comic book star and a musician, the front man of Mirachi Ghost. Is that how you like to be uh, sure. introduced? Uh, All of one those of things? the persons in Mirachi Ghost. Yeah, one of the persons, because there's a lot of persons in that there's band. There's a lot of persons in that band. Yeah. Okay, and uh, he's here to talk to us about... Uh, well, we're going to start. He started today when he came into the studio telling me about something that he called the Truth Pyramid. And I would be remiss not to just have him recap right now the Truth Pyramid. And then we'll hold ourselves to this standard. Okay, the great. The Truth Pyramid is the yeah. standard now. I like it. Um, so the Truth Pyramid is something they use in philosophy of science um, to explain how reality works to people. So truth is something that is plastic. Uh, you can think of it as clay. You can mold it to whatever your personality is or whatever your life is or your life situations are. And it can always change. So you can change your, you know, when people talk about their truth, they can change their truth constantly through life, right? And somebody else's truth is going to be different than your truth, no matter what. So in this way, Jesus is true in the same way that Buddha is true or Muhammad is true, right? And the all three of them can be true at the same time or not, depending on who you are then that's the top, the top level of the pyramid. That is all kind of pending on the second level of the pyramid, which is the, what, the furthest we, the human brain can reach. It's called certainty. Certainty requires proof. So our scientific knowledge is based in certainty, the principle of certainty. So you, we are certain of something because we were able to demonstrate it repeatedly to ourselves, right? So we're certain that we're in a collective experience as humans because we have, you know, we have collective experiences repeatedly. Um, we have measured this time. Is like, we have measured space. This right? is like Boreard. The real is only that which can be recreated. Yeah, basically. Okay. I'm with um, you so far then. Yeah. yeah. And then there's reality. And then basically reality is unchangeable. We have no access to it. We can only live in it. Right? And so we don't necessarily even need to understand it. Certainty allows us a certain amount of understanding of reality, but it doesn't mean that we can fully grasp reality. And the human brain isn't designed for reality. It's designed for certainty and for truth, but it's not designed for actually understanding what reality is. We'll never, we, with our brain capacity, we're never going to be able to understand all of reality in the entire universe, right? We can't. We can hope to, and we should hope to. Which leads us towards truth <laughs> through certainty but doesn't allow for objective. No, I guess truth would be objective. It wouldn't allow for truth and certainty to occupy the same place. I love this. Okay, so how do you apply this to your own work? You're a, let's just call you a creative person, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't get bored, you said earlier. Yeah. You just do lots of stuff. As, as long as I'm not bored, is great. That's good. So how do you let the fact that when you're picking a project or when you're working with creative people, how does this truth pyramid help you out? Uh, for example, in the band, there is at every point in time, 
eight different sounds that are being put into the music. Okay, so just let's pause for a moment. In a short summation, yeah. tell our listeners about Mariachi Ghost. The Mariachi Ghost is a band that mixes Mexican traditional song and psychedelic proc rock um, and creates a mise-en-scene uh, that is a kind of a theatrical show that takes you to old Mexico, through the ghosts of old Mexico, and creates this um, very passionate, very um, tangible feeling of otherness on the stage. makes a lot of sense especially in context of this uh the way that you set up our show so far okay so you're looking at both cultural truth mm -hmm. spiritual truth mm -hmm. uh intellectual truth mm -hmm. all through the presentation of music yeah and you yourselves there's eight of you in the band you said yeah. and um i've seen you live a few times um and i'm constantly blown away with how different each of those performances are and so I never quite know what's going to happen next. How do you guys know what's going to happen next? Um, we don't necessarily. <laughs> it's up. We plan for things differently. Um, and each person works in a different way, speed, sound, form, you know. Um, and no one in the band is exclusively there to be a musician. Somebody, each person in the band has their own role as more than one discipline. So it's a multidisciplinary project in the best kind of sense of the, of the word that everybody's allowed to bring their, all of their skills and idiosyncrasies. And, you know, like it leads to a lot of like complications and arguments and, you know, schedules and whatever. But when you put it on the stage, <clears throat> the, the one hour that is on the stage is this like total harmony that is created by the chaos of eight people being able to kind of blah their art on each other, you know? And it takes practice, it takes a lot of practice. Um, but for example, Alex, who is our dancer, um, is there also as a musician, but most of her work is taking the feelings that we want to convey and then turning that emotional dimension into something that the audience can just grasp which is hard, right? So for her and I have long conversations about how we would feel to be a ghost, how we would like, how we would feel to lose everything, how we would feel to, you know, acquire a new lover and haven't taken away. And like the ethos, the new ethos of the band right now, because we're in a new album with a new ethos, is um, life is made up of the things that are taken away. So you start with this, like, you know, like you imagine as a page and then you, get shapes cut out of that page. And those are the things that you have, but they're all like kind of always missing. And they're just impressions. They're just impressions and, and shadows. And that's in this, in the ethos of this album, how it feels like to be a ghost. Okay. So that last um, analogy that you used was a very visual analogy. I think that's the director in you coming through. How do you make that come through 
in your work on um, stage? Because there's a visual component to Mariachi Ghost, yeah. a very strong one. Yeah. So Alex has uh, developed this. We have different props, right? Um, Alex has developed this for one of our tracks called Susanna, this blind dance where she blinds herself and goes through the stage blind and dances blind, like with her eyes covered. And I think that gives that dimension to people that there's something missing, that she's not in control, right? And it's this like very painful, um, the way I see what a ghost would be is like a permanent delay. Like you play with a delay pedal that has like, you know, full feedback and you can hear it forever, right? whatever you play and it keeps repeating it to itself and feeding back into itself and that feedback becomes like this endless louder crazier note wave drone whatever you want to call it and so if you put if you were because it's to multiplying put, by itself every time it hears and, right and it becomes this crazy echo that is louder to itself right like think about it when you look into a mirror that has a mirror behind it and you can see an endless version right. of you going into infinity but you can't quite look at it because you're yeah. in the way exactly yeah. So that's what an emotion would be that would make a ghost, because a ghost is basically that a specific, a, a true emotion that cannot leave uh, whatever realm, right? Um, and so, so her character for the song keeps repeating to herself all of these phrases that are actual phrases that you can't hear because the music is being played really loud. But there's intent in it, right? And so she keeps, it's like she has dementia and she's talking to herself and listening to herself and then talking to herself all while blinded, right? And so the audience don't necessarily know that all of these things are intentional that they're, they're, when they're looking at it at them, but they can, there's that emotional hook that is pulling them, right? Like, like shit, that's Because they're connecting painful. with performance, yeah. whether they understand its context or not. Exactly. And they've seen this in so many different mediums, right? You either have a, a relative that suffers from dementia and you've seen this really painful thing happening to them or you've seen them in on movies or you you know and that's that those feelings kind of build up build up the music the music so the music is landing on this already kind of open heart right and so you're looking at a performance and then listening to music and your brain's already kind of open to this new universe that uh where the music exists so there's your uh notion of reality and certainty and truth all sort of compressing together into this stage performance mm -hmm. um what is your motivation for wanting to bring this feeling of uncertainty and this sort of parade of the dead to an audience um because i think that when you can visit you can visit other physical places and that has a certain um, release for your for your mind, right? So you can travel to Toronto and just it's just because it's a change of scenery, you know, you come back, you feel recharged. Um, you can go to Mexico, you know, tan for two weeks and then come back and then feel recharged. I feel like you can do that with your emotions. It doesn't have to be your entire person that goes somewhere and comes back. And I think comic books give us that and books give us that and TV shows give us that, right? It's something where you can disconnect and exercise these feelings that are already in you, right? Give them a certain release and then come back to your own part of reality and feel like you've exercised those things. So like you're ca always carrying sadness and anger and you're always carrying happiness and joy in your heart, right? But you don't 
you know, they get in the way of each other if you don't exercise them all. Right. And so if you can go visit sadness for a, for a couple of for 45 minutes and if you can go visit sorrow for 45 minutes and it doesn't have to be your sorrow, then you can come back and then experience your life and be like, I have it pretty good here. We have come to visit you in peace and with goodwill. Do you believe in ghosts? No, you don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in anything. You don't believe in anything. I when I when we were talking about how I when I was 16, I decided to cut out morality out of my life. Right. At the same time, I decided, well, a couple of years later maybe, I decided to cut belief out of my life. I don't need to believe anything. Right. I just like knowing. And when I don't know, I don't know. I just don't know. And there's so much joy in being able to say, I don't know. I'd like to know, but at least I know that I don't know, and that's re a relief. And yet... In that context, you and your creative partners in the band yeah. work hard, pontificate, meditate, and discuss ways in which you can bring an experience that you don't actually believe in mm -hmm. to an audience. Yeah. Now, I am fascinated by the way that art as a creative um, object is separate from the creator and I didn't think we would get there in this conversation mm -hmm. but here we are now how do you square the circle of the things you make people see a certain way mm -hmm. because you are, you know you're a filmmaker you're a writer you're a musician and people see a lot of things in your work mm -hmm. that is not present um, I feel like we're all made of stories that have been told to us or we've experienced or, you know, like the family stories that are passed down generations after generations, right? My family stories are horrid ghost death stories. That's what my dad, my, my uh, grandfather loved to tell, right? Um, and there's so much beauty in the idea of the afterlife. Um, and fiction is there kind of as a service for that, right? So. You don't need to believe in the afterlife to understand what the afterlife means for this group of people or this group of people. And, it, and the afterlife is a truth, right? You can think that the afterlife is this or you can treat that the afterlife is, think that the afterlife is this. And they can both have an incredible value in how you live your life. But you don't know, like, you don't know what's going to happen, but you can believe in either of either or. And that is storytelling. And this is the, the truest kind of sense of storytelling. It's a story that you tell to yourself, right? That, about who you are. About who you are and who, you, you know, you, you can be. Like, Catholics believe a certain amount of, you know, of afterlife. And, um, like, my, my family is Catholic, right? And they like to think about afterlife in a certain way. And that is such a beautiful cultural expression, right? But the Catholics from Mexico don't believe the same as the Catholics from Italy, even they're though right. they're the same religion, right? Yeah. They're very different. The Catholics from Mexico have like all this other witchcraft and, you know, indigenous knowledge and like day, like day of the dead. You get to come back like once yeah. a year, you hang out, right? So all of those things are beautiful. Both of those things are beautiful. And so looking at them and being able to free from believing them, being able to looking at them in an objective way and, and say, those things are fantastic. I want to tell all those stories. They're just there waiting to be told. How do I learn them and retell them? Um, I feel like ghosts are the perfect vehicle for it because 
they don't need to be anything. They can be anything. They could literally be anything you want, right? It's such a, when you try to define ghost, and you ask anybody to say, what is a ghost? Define the word ghost. Someone has an answer for it. And what's interesting about that question, there's a few things. There's a few questions you can ask people that when you want to divide the room, the ghost one is usually a good one. Mm -hmm. You know, between the abject deniers and the complete believers. Mm -hmm. And what usually separates them is their certainty based on experience. Exactly. Right? Some experience that they've had. Yeah. Right? I am uh, certain, based on my experiences, that ghosts might be real. Now, I throw the might in there because... You're certain there might be real? I'm certain there yeah. might be real. Because you've had things that have happened to you that Some are Some very strange events, yeah. In the presence of other individuals as well. And so, yeah. you know, while we all may have a different rationale for why it has occurred, yeah. it did occur as a shared experience that we can all say, hey, remember that those few months where this yeah. really weird stuff happened? But was it a measurable experience? I think it was measurable. There was physical evidence after the fact. Mm -hmm. There was um, uh, an increase. We were measuring. We okay, I have to tell the whole story. I can't tell the whole story, but I'll tell part of the story. In two different instances in my life, I am convinced that I lived in a haunted house. One was an old, uh, it had would been a converted courthouse in B.C., uh, which we found out after we looked at some records, after some weird things started happening, um, that they had hung people there originally. So this, of course, fed our belief that the weird stuff that was happening with the animals and with the nighttime noises and with things being moved into different places. Okay, it's just the unquiet spirits of these poor hung individuals. So we can cut them some slack. That's mm -hmm. how we all actually mm -hmm. kind of uh, just said, okay, fine. You'd be mad too. You'd be restless too if this is how you ended. So, And then actually... After we decided that, things sort of calmed down, and we carried on with our everyday life. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a number of years. Again, I lived in a big old house. This one I owned with a buddy of mine, and we had, uh, it was a fourplex, so we had renters and all these different suites, um, which were separated by walls, but the house itself was this big old brick building that had used to belong to an old fire chief in 1906 here in Winnipeg. And a number of things started happening, and at the same time, so many of our friends that were living in the house we were convinced that we were pulling pranks on each other. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. what had started as, oh, this person is just moving this stuff around in the house or this person is just doing that and, and we don't know where all the keys are and people, are, and it's like funny. And then we also were pulling pranks on each other. But one day we sat down, a whole bunch of us, and started comparing notes on things that each other had done to each other and it turned out the vast majority of them were not, in fact, anything that had been perpetrated by any of us and then my uh uh girlfriend at the time my wife now she came home and was very upset one day because she thought we were messing with her but it turned out none of us had been home in the house at all so there was a there was a number of specific events that to me create an element of um an element of room for one type of truth mm -hmm. in your truth pyramid mm -hmm. that goes could be real mm -hmm. Um, can I ever know it in, uh, in the sense of reality? I don't think I can ever know it. I, could, I can't go back to that same time, to those same experiences, but I can trust in the experiences of the people around me. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe we'll do a Halloween ghost episode because there's some shattered mirror stories part of this and some weird footprints in the house and some uh, odd touching that occurred at certain times. Uh, 
we'll tell you all of these stories later, or maybe I'll make a graphic novel about it. As the Count turns into a monster and seeks his revenge. Uh, the Mariachi Ghost started as a comic book. Tell us um, about that. So I was, I was visiting Mexico right after I finished university. It's my last visit to Mexico after university. Um, and I had been obsessed with this story that my grandpa used to tell me about El Charro Negro, who's this like, what you think of, when you think of a mariachi, the clothes they're using is actually called charros. It's the dressing style of traditional Mexico, mostly Western Mexico, um, that you think of, you know, with the sombreros and the boots and they rode horses and whatever. Um, and so El Charro Negro was this charro that rode the black horse and was wearing black clothes and had a machete or some sort of like bladed weapon and decapitated people that were unjust. So if you were some sort of a sinner, my grandpa called them sinners. If you were some sort of a sinner and you had like, you know, raped a girl or whatever, something terrible, El Charro Negro might in the middle of the night come find you and cut your head off. And that's it. It's just a ghost that goes around, you know, delivering justice um or vengeance or vengeance depends on how you see it if yeah. you were the girl probably justice justice right if you were the dad of the guy that just got his hair, head chopped off vengeance you know totally different lens um and so i was obsessed with that i was like well that's a superhero right like whether it's a real ghost or it's a person pretending to be a ghost and people think he's a ghost that's basically batman yeah. <laughs> right? So, and it's a traditional story. Like, it's been there for hundreds of years, right? And so I was like, I want to make a comic book about that. No, you, okay. So, the, the story that comes to mind immediately for me in this sort of westernized tradition is the story of the Headless Horseman, mm. right? But that has its, you know, Irving, it has its, its origin point. We know where in history it was written down. Does this have a corresponding author or is this like a... There is no actual author um, that I can, that I can, you know, quote. Right. Um, I found the story um, explained in, in this book of like traditional stories that I found from the University of Colima where my mom grew up, my dad grew up and my grandpa lived. Um, so they had all these traditional stories that were told by old people. They go to old folks' homes and they ask the old, folk, old folks to uh, tell them traditional stories before they're forgotten. Collect traditional knowledge, yeah. And so there's like twelve, like le like not like twelve books that have all these stories, right? The majority of them are, you know, like tales with a moral you know, ending, you know. So like folk music, you can't really pin down where it started. Exactly, but people yeah. know. People yeah. just people just know. Uh, but this one. It was in three different, three of the different books. Three different old people decided that this was the story that they wanted to tell about El Charro Negro, um, and each story was a little bit different, right? Um, some of them, like you can smell him coming because he smells like sulfur because he's from hell. Some of them, you know, you can't, like you just never know, and you can't walk by yourself at night. There's actually a statue to El Charro Negro in the middle of Colima. Like somebody built a statue to this hero, folk hero, you know, that was like punishing the unjust. Um, so it's uh, like, I don't know where, I don't know specifically where it was created, but I know in the east of Mexico, they don't have the same thing. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like mostly Western middle Mexico. So 
this inspired you to make a comic? This inspired me to... It's inspiring me to make a comic. So yeah, yeah. I don't know how yeah. I couldn't have done it to you. Um, it, so I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to figure out who El Charro Negro was, right? And so I started looking at the history of Colima, the estate, right? And it's, it's got the biggest harbor in the west of Mexico, right? So it has, to, it has the biggest harbor between San Diego and Buenos Aires. Like, it's like the biggest harbor on the, in, the, in the Pacific, right? So um, all of the Chinese goods that have come to, to Mexico and a lot of Chinese goods that came to North America came through that harbor. And then I did not know that but at the time, but when I started doing research, I realized that at one point there were 600,000 Filipinos living in Mexico. Huh. So there was a giant migration of Filipino people that came to Mexico and moved to that harbor first. And they brought the coconuts and the mangoes, which are like two like intrinsical part of the identity of the Mexican West, right? Like you can't really go to a beach in the West of Mexico without Right, without coconut, these things right? being fosted upon it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and they, they brought the salt trade. They taught people, the indigenous people of Mexico, how to harvest the salt, right? So like all these in super interesting things, right? But at the same time, the things that come from the Western coast are not just things from Asia, like China, the Philippines, Japan, all of these things were an influence in part of the culture. And actually, if you look at the people, phenotypically, they're more like um, Filipino people than the rest of Mexico in the state of Colima, Jalisco, Michoacan, which is where this coast is, um, which is super interesting. And also, we make the same kind of bread, right? We kinda, they kind of cook the same kind of food, Simple things like eggs are traditionally made in a very specific way in the west of Mexico, right? Like the bottom of it has to be like almost burnt when you fry them and they have to be like really fried the same way that they're made in the Philippines. Very super interesting, right? And so I figured out that they had to be characters that carried that mantle and maybe the main character had to carry that mantle, right? So... I also figured out that there was probably a lot of people that came from Russia, which ended up being true. A lot of people that came from the vast country, from Spain, from the other side of the world, um, that ended up moving into Colima and becoming the rulers of it because they were wider, right? And so, but Spain is not just an easy configuration themselves, right? There's in Spain, there's the Gitanos, which are like the gypsies of Spain, the Roma of Spain, that are a really important part. And then Spain was 800 years who had been conquered by the Arabs, right? So it was like a caliphate. Like all of the south of Spain, southern Spain was a caliphate, right? right? And so they, they have all of this. That's where, like, the, what we think of as flamenco music came, the Arabica music came from, all of that stuff, right? So they themselves are a complicated mix, right? So the people that moved to Mexico from Spain when the conquest happened were people that had been cast out in Spain. They were the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, right? And they were sent to Mexico and they were whiter or just more Spanish, not in every instance whiter, than the indigenous people of Mexico and thus better. And so they were able to acquire a higher status. But if they had gone back to Spain, their status would have been back to low, right? Right. So they, they carried all this guilt and all this, like, you know, things to overcome. And so I, I wanted to put all of that super cultural, super complicated cultural construction into the comic book. So when most people set out to create a comic book, they want an iconic character who like kicks criminals in the face. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of where the social commentary usually ends. Mm -hmm. My big problem with Batman is that it's essentially a class war comic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. rich people are allowed to put on cool armor and then beat up poor people, but the poor people are only committing crimes because they don't have money. Mm -hmm. So if they put all the money that was put in their super suits 
into social programs, they wouldn't have to kick anyone in the face. Yeah. Right? So you wanted to put an entire cultural history into yeah into a character who chops people's heads off for justice? Yeah, so I made him homeless. I made him I made him somebody somebody that has lost had lost his life twice. When he was a kid, he lost his life and he got adopted by an Asian family that taught him, you know, to live in the language and they were immigrants themselves and they taught him how to like taught him Asian martial arts, you know, a diversity of them and he grew up with other Asian kids, right? So he has all this um complicated cultural background from all of the immigrants that had come to Mexico. And then that gets taken away from him again. Right. Um, and so his psyche kind of fragments and he doesn't quite know if he's dead or alive. And the only time that he feels alive is when he's fighting crime. The rest of the time, he's sure he's just a ghost. Right. And somehow this amazing comic book idea, which I have never held in my hand, became a band instead of a comic book. I started writing the comic book and writing. Well, I was writing music at the same time or writing play music at the same time. And so some of the poetry that I was trying to put into the comic book started becoming lyrics for songs. And then I didn't have any time to do comic book because I was too busy playing shows and rehearsing for shows and building the ideas and the feelings that the comic book had into the band. So um, I feel as a creative person, something that's really important for people to remember is that when they are not sure what to do, that they shouldn't eliminate anything. They should transmute it. They should, mm -hmm. you know, things you're not sure what to do with, just change it into something else that you're doing now mm -hmm. and just keep that momentum moving. So it sounds very much like that's what you did. You yeah. just had this great motive force inside of you and you just turned it into music. Unfortunately, I abandoned, you know, all my notebooks with notes and, you know, they're somewhere in my basement right. hiding, waiting to... But they're in you like that cutout... Right? Exactly. They're yeah, like they're, they're, so, they're something that got taken away. Yeah, if we shine enough light, the images will show through. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. And I think actually I had a meeting with you at Bar Italia. Way longer. That's how many years ago yeah. is that now? Maybe 10. And you know what I took away from that? You told me a story then. Um, uh, they had a, they had a uh, Spanish name, but you used the phrase nightbirds, mm -hmm. which at the time, now this is interesting because we haven't spoken about this since then. Uh, and in my mind, I got this incredible vision of these like um, sort of midnight cloaked highwaymen uh, who had kind of a Robin Hood sense of justice, but a uh, sort of cowboy sensibility about them, these night birds. And I just to me, this is this iconic image has haunted me for a while. And I've wanted to make a night bird style character or story since that day. And now it's been rekindled. But in, Somehow they have to show up in this. Um, how do you pronounce it? The dark head cutting. El charro negro. Charro negro. Uh -huh. Okay, in charro negro's story, mm -hmm. we need to have some night birds. Did I get the night? Do I remember the night birds? Yeah, right? yeah, and, and it's something that I, I like. Yeah, it's my dad. My dad used to say that all the time. To watch out for the night birds. Well, don't be a night bird. Don't be a night bird. Yeah. I don't know. Like, they sounded like pretty cool. No, no. I, well, that's what if your dad says, "Don't be a nightbird." You know, you're like, okay, well, that's my next band. I Better guess. the nightbirds. <laughs> <laughs> the height and the horror. Shock your senses. Kill your brain. I'm fascinated by the idea that this comic book 
started a musical career for you and this visual storytelling that's in you mm-hmm. turned you into a director i think i think so and i think it was after film school like i went to film school because i wanted to learn more about how to make films and how to th- i went to u of m because in u of m they teach you how to think about films they don't necessarily teach you how to make the that's films true. per yes. se but they yeah. teach you how to read about films how to write about films how to think about films they sharpen your brain for you in a way right all the things that you needed to read they show them to you and then but in all the films that you needed to watch they give you some tools and if you're smart yeah. you go and use them and if you're not you put them in a drawer and you say oh i have and these tools. another degree yeah that's right yeah um which is fine also you know you can't really have i, I believe firmly that you can't really have enough degrees like if you like if, if you have enough money to go take another degree yeah you, you should for sure yeah never so, be afraid of knowledge whatever for awesome sure. yeah great sweet um but um so i got a uh, comic book that was an essay about comic books and i don't remember what it was but you probably have both read it it's this uh it's it's Man, I, I wish I, I wish Scott could... McCloud's yes understanding comics. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, yeah as yeah. he's as he uh, as Jorge showed me the thickness between yeah. his two fingers, yeah. I knew it exactly. Yeah, which yeah. One and was... uh, it it talked about sequential sequential imaging, right? Yeah. And I had just come out of studying anthropology. That was my minor in, in university, and uh, and my last year, I took a course called Art Symbols and Culture, which talked about oh those two books. Those yeah. That's exactly the right time to read that book, which right? It's all about semiotic language and how you create emotion through visual storytelling that is static, though, not moving, which is different because film, you have that great moment yeah. of performance. You can yeah. have two or three seconds yeah. where a human emotes a feeling and you feel it across that great divide of time and, mm-hmm. and place, and that's film magic. When comics pull that off, I think it's doubly magical because they don't have motion. Yeah, I mean, they don't have like practical motion. Yeah, right. Right, but this closure, which is what I loved about that book, is right. that the white space in between the frames of a comic book is literally where the magic happens. Right, the space between beats, between moments, where your brain fills in everything and what you're supposed to feel. And that's yeah. that's awesome. And yeah. th- that is how magic works. Absolutely, yeah. That's like that's how my like that's how Houdini made his living from yeah. the the concept of closure. I think I don't think he had necessarily the wits or the sophistication intentionally. He was a really unsophisticated person intentionally. But uh, to think about it in like a philosophical way of like, hold on, let me come closure. back because I like I uh, I like talking about magic and Houdini in particular. Yeah. You say he was unsophisticated intentionally. Yeah, Houdini. So Houdini. Because I think David Blaine the same way. He's unintentionally. Or he's intentionally unsophisticated. unsophisticated. I, I think that you need that persona for people not to think that you're too smart and that you're actually pulling a fast one on them. Right. Yeah, if people think, oh, here comes a clever guy, yeah. and it Houdini must be a, a trick. was a thug. Yeah. Like he had, he had hoodlums that like came around with him and beat people up and like he broke people's fingers that were all that comp- stealing his tricks or per- like seemingly stealing his tricks. He thought they were maybe yeah. stealing his tricks. And you know what's great about this is I, I've read a lot about Houdini and I've heard a lot about this stuff. And, you know, Houdini came through Winnipeg at one point. Yeah. Uh, I think that a lot of that is a story that he... That he crafted That himself. he crafted to give himself credit. 
I would because when yeah. you look hard at the people who got their fingers broken, they hard to, you don't find them. There is nobody who is like, oh, I was the great Mesmo and I stole a Houdini trick and yeah. he had my fingers broken. You may be right, and the other thing is Houdini was part of the Scientific American Council. Yeah, right. Um, and so the greatest magicians of their age. The, Basically, um, I'm, uh, I'm right now. I'm working on a movie uh, on a script with Carolyn Gray, who is a writer from here that wrote a play called The Elmwood Visitation, which is about ghosts, about spiritualism. Um, and so, Winnipeg was a great center for spiritualism, and that brought Sir Arthur Conan Doyle here mm -hmm. for a séance, right? With uh, the lady that was the lead medium in her time. And she was being studied by a doctor here in Winnipeg, uh, D.G. Hamilton, who was the leading psychic researcher in the world, right? Who also lived in Winnipeg in Elmwood. And the house is still there. You can go to the Hamilton house. and There's no more ghosts there or anything, but, you know, the house is there. Or is there? Well, it's, it's on Henderson, so I don't know if you want to live there if you're a ghost. <laughs> or you want to maybe move to Osborne Village or something. Um, probably a better option. Um, but so Houdini spent years of his late later life trying to disprove Margaret, the the the, the lady that the, the medium, right? He spent years of his well, her actual name was Wilmina, but her husband asked her to change her name. Yeah, right. And the notion was to that uh, once that he believed or wanted to believe that his mother was waiting for him. And yeah. all these people kept promising, oh, I'll connect you with your mother, I'll connect you with your mother, and then he just started debunking them. Well, he, he, fought, he would see the tricks happening in yeah. front of him, and he'd yeah. be like, dude, that's a trick. That's what I do for a living. Yeah. Um, and so, and that trip to, like, my, our film plays that trip to Winnipeg from Houdini, the trip to Winnipeg for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and then the Scientific American Council meetings where they decided whether Wilmina was the world's one true medium or not, and where Houdini actually was sitting in the council trying to disprove her. And they forced her to try to pull one of Houdini's hardest tricks, the milk can escape, um, and she could not. And then when she could not, and they released her from it, they found this like extendable ruler in her hair. And so she was disproven that she could, you know. But she was, if she, like, she was the world's greatest magician along with Houdini, except her magic was for a different reason. Right. Right? She wanted to help you communicate with your, with your loved one on the other side or whatever. Uh, and she was a fraudster. Right. But her tricks took just as much wit. Okay, but hold on. Let me come back now around. Yeah. Do you think she was a fraudster or do you think she was just presenting people with the truth they wanted? Presenting people with truth they want is a fraud. Oh, but people are entitled to their truth. We started here at the truth pyramid, didn't we? They're entitled to their truth. Right. But the moment you profit from giving them that or seemingly giving them that, because you can also lie to them. Because isn't she just, she just it, becomes right? their clergy at that point. In she? a way, yeah. And she wanted to start her own religion. Right. Because, like, you know, no taxes. Right. It's great. Yeah. But. She I'm really sure Elrond Hubbard probably studied some of what she was thinking. Probably, yeah. Um, so, and the, the spiritual, the, the spiritualist religion was in Winnipeg was pretty strong. Like, 
even after the fraud was demonstrated. It remains it strong today. There's it. a lot of people in that community. And, here. Yeah, yeah. And, and Carolyn, the writer that is that wrote the play that I'm, we're now turning into a script for a movie, has had death threats from spiritualists that are like, well, you can't you can't say that Wilmina was lying. Like, yes, I can actually. This prove. Right. Um, it's been proven. Not, not only was it proven back then, you know, there's been more and more evidence since. There's literally no evidence that she was telling the truth. So just like based on that, no, but we'll kill you. But coming back around, if you don't have, you can't possibly claim to know more about reality than they do. So this burden of proof, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. They don't require it the same way that you They don't are. require it. I require it. Right. Right. So that I, whether know or not know, right. But they can believe in spiritualism. You can believe a lie, right? Even though it's like very obviously a lie. Like we all believe in the value of money. Right, but it's a complete fallacy. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And we practice that every day. Yeah. Right? It's so, amazing trying to explain to my kids. Like they immediately understand that money has no real value. Mm -hmm. That it's just a pro I try to explain to him like, well, it's more like a promise. Yeah. And look, but dad, sometimes people break their promises. It's like, yeah, yeah, kid, <laughs> you got it figured yeah. out. Yes, entire countries that suffer from that. Yeah. Yeah, wow. like where I'm uh, on my uh, father's side, I'm from Belarus, and their currency was reset to zero more than once within my lifetime. So people who had all their money stored in the banks, one day they woke up to find that nothing, nothing valueless, and they're resetting the currency. And so any money you had physically, worthless. Any money you had in the bank, worthless. Starting from scratch today, got to go to work because you have zero. The problem that I see with that is that it's, there's no guarantee, zero guarantee, that that's not going to happen to us. Right. But we believe that everything is fine. Yeah. And so we carry on. But we don't know. This is my thing of like, you know, go to the bank, like, hey, we'd like to extend our mortgage or whatever, you know, like, okay, here's their interest rates. I'm like, yeah. this is all like... We're all just dancing with it, right? That's like, right. Yeah. It's, just, it's like a sorry. levitating table at a seance. It is. It's a, that's entirely it. It's like, we're all just, this is just a dance that we're doing so that I can continue to live in my house. Yeah. Right. And continue to have a job. And it's great. You know, but I have a machete under my bed. <laughs> so if you come to take my house, you know what I'm saying? It's like the tangibility of like the stories of my grandfather. Like, yeah. And then the thieves came, right? <laughs> And your cousin got Negro and kid. they shot him in the night. Yeah. And then all of the other cousins went and they found the thieves, thieves in the mountain and they killed him. And then the peace reigned in the town again. So I've dedicated a very large portion of my life to storytelling. Yeah. Right. Uh, I've done some theater work. I've done some TV work. I've done. But comics is my that's where my heart is entirely. But this what I. What I want to do now, what I've been working at doing now, is making stories that um, have more relevance within a reflection on my own life. So the first kind of comics I made were, you know, I called action adventure stories or, you know, superhero stories mm -hmm. or whatever. And more and more, as I look at what I can use the medium for, it becomes an exploration. So I just did uh, a book called Medicine, mm -hmm. which is about the real emotional cost of a life working in medicine. Mm -hmm. It's co-written by Gillian Horton. I interviewed surgeons and doctors and uh, people in the medical profession about the real cost of mm -hmm. being a doctor. 
Um, and then I worked with Dave Robertson on Will I See. Him and Isque had a story about missing and murdered indigenous women and children, and they invited me to come on and work on this story. And in my wildest dreams of, you know, 10-year-old Gregory, when I said, you know, when I'm all grown up, I'm going to make comic books. I think 10-year-old Gregory was thinking of ROM Space Night as a profession, and uh, 40-year-old Gregory now sees the real power of that storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm hearing that in you, too, mm -hmm. that the young version of you was inspired by these larger-than-life characters. Mm -hmm. But when, you, when you're putting your active life energy into your work, it comes out in a much more complicated way than just some guy chopping up criminals. Yeah, it is, I guess it's, it always has to be, right? We always get the story when we get the story about the guy chopping up a bunch of criminals in the news or whatever, right? right? We always get the story and it's always little bits of a story that kind of don't matter. Like the, the facts of what happened. Right. You know, like there's this, the bomber guy right now that bombed the lawyer. Right. right. And, and sent bombs to his wife and whatever. Like we are hearing all those facts, right? And by no means, I'm, this, is, this sound like I'm defending him. He's a we don't know how he felt. We don't right. know what demons were going in his mind. And I'm not blaming the demons either. Right. It's all his fault. Um, what was happening to him that made him go that nuts to send bombs over the mail. Right. Like, yeah, over he, the couldn't, mail. he couldn't just have blown up the lawyer. Like, he put it in the mail. Like, he risked so many thousands of lives. Yeah. So stupid. So, okay. So, yeah. why do we, do you think do that so my wife and i were watching a documentary series uh yesterday i convinced her to do mm -hmm. it in in full disclosure i said hey look a bigfoot documentary series <laughs> we should totally watch this mm -hmm. and uh she was you know she was a little under the weather and her her resistance was worn down and so she acquiesced but um i wish i could remember the exact name of it the third episode of it actually they did dna testing for this Russian supposed Neanderthal mm -hmm. woman that had been captured by a uh, in the like 1840s mm. um, and held captive, and she gave birth to these three children. And the story was that this uh, Neanderthal that there was a line of genetic material that mm. they could track, and so they found the great 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 grandchildren and they tested their DNA. And they did a bunch of research and they tried to figure out, like, was there, in fact, this uh, wild woman, Neanderthal offspring that was mm -hmm. loose in the woods? An engaging story from a mythological standpoint. And they did not shy away from the truth at the end, which I was shocked because I was expecting a sensationalized Bigfoot story. Hmm. Instead, through DNA testing, they realized that an African woman had been taken captive and kept as a sex slave in this oligarch's mansion and that in order to sort of protect their own integrity the community had created this story that she was a monster so that they could handle the fact that they knew it was going on within their own community and we as human beings i think would rather like for example this story of the of the um dark horseman who chops mm. off villains' heads. Probably that was just somebody's uncle, right? Who went and killed a rapist, and then people were like, wow, you know? Yeah. That's probably... So not Johnny, the, can you do it again? Yeah, can you do it again? Somebody stole my car. Exactly. Yeah. 
right? That we want to tell stories that are larger than life in order to distance ourselves from reality. But my favorite thing about science fiction and about genre fiction and, you know, partially why uh, I make these things and partly why we make this podcast is because science fiction, uh, speculative fiction genre isn't about the future or the ancient mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. It's about the present day. Mm-hmm. It's people talking mm-hmm. about things now in a way that's more comfortable and palatable to have a broad discussion about. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I, I totally agree with that. I feel like. All sorts of genre storytelling is stems from a desire to teach society something that society has hasn't been able to figure out how to look at itself in that way. Now, do you think? I know in my own sake, I don't usually have the answer. I just want to talk about it, and so I will create a story that allows me to mm-hmm. have that discussion without necessarily saying this is what Gregory yeah. thinks about it. How do you do that in your own work? Um. That's a that's a good question. Um, the reason I liked comic books when I was six years old or seven years old is because I was a super skinny, bullied kid that found solace in the fact that these heroes could fight back, right? And they had the power of saying no. They have the power to like point fingers back and you know push back to the you know the meanies around, um, and then. My dad put me in karate classes since I was like five or six um, and then notoriously filled up the bottom of my backpack with a bunch of stones so that I would carry a heavy backpack for the whole year. My dad's that kind of a guy. Um, he also went to karate classes himself. Um, and um, that gave me the power that those heroes had to defend themselves. So do you think this was a will to suffer with dignity? Like what I think, um, you know, in the classic comic book trope characters, Daredevil was always my favorite growing up. Yeah. Um, I didn't, he was, you know, and I got into him as a young kid during the Frank Miller run. So there mm-hmm. was a lot of stuff over super my dark, head at yeah. that time. Super dark. But what I, that he would get beat down. Yeah. Right. Essentially he's bullied all the time. Yeah. Right. Same kind of thing. But he would get up with dignity despite the black eye and the torn face. And he'd put his suit on and he'd go to work as a public defender. Yeah. And at night he'd go and do it again. Yeah. So is that what you hoped for yourself? I think what I hoped for myself was to be able to not let other people, and this is like the weird part, not let other people feel what I was feeling when I was being bullied mm. because of the comic books. So right. I feel like I felt that I could be a hero and that was great, a great feeling. Like I, you know, at six, six or seven years old, it was entirely a dream of my, of my own that I could just like, you know, some, somebody was going to bully the girl I liked and then I was going to beat the crap out of them because I could right. all of a sudden, right? Um, but I do feel that that feeling gave me the, the, the idea that we do need the heroes to be there to inspire people to stand up for themselves or others. Right. And at one point during the 60s and 70s... and So then genre matters. Fiction matters is it, what you're saying. It, it matters very much. And like I feel like... The, the reason I don't like postmodernism, and we can have an entire other huge conversation about how I dislike postmodernism, even though I like a lot of postmodern works, is because I feel like this anti-hero and this like the flexible value system, where like and by all means it needs to be there, but where whereby heroes are always flawed, which is true, um, it made the hero kind of irrelevant and unnecessary, and it made 
for bystander culture where you're just watching people suffer without doing anything about it, right? And I feel like as naive and on self-aware as it was in the 1940s and 50s when we had this first comic book, even 30s, this first comic book heroes like Superman in the 30s, right? Like right. all of a sudden there's a hero, right? Um, Superman occupies a different space though, I think. Because the heroes at that time in pulp literature were these masked wealthy people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Who would often go away to the mystic East and yeah. come back with some forbidden or just knowledge. Bruisers, like, right? Know? Yeah, they would just punch people. But then here comes Superman yeah. who has actual powers. Yeah. Right? And it sets him apart. He pretends to be a person. Yeah. Right? Has to pretend. But is a super being, yeah. as opposed to these people who pretend to be super mm -hmm. beings. Mm -hmm. Right. And this, I think, is more of what you're talking about. Like when Superman arrives on the comic book scene, you see an explosion on the newsstand. It is wildly successful. And there are hundreds of Superman analog characters that yeah. show up on the newsstand. Mm -hmm. And I think it's 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 not um, coincidental mm -hmm. of what was going on in the world at the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that the pulps were used as a propaganda mm -hmm. tool, we know that. But the the ones that became popular and endured beyond that pulp system are these larger-than-life heroes that do set an example that yeah. none of us could ever stand up to, but we're inspired by. Ratu, Barada, Nikto. And we were talking about these Mexican characters earlier, right? Uh, the, the Mexican comic books. Right. Both of them, there's uh, Kaliman and then Chanak. So Kaliman is this guy that goes to India to find himself in meditation and yoga and martial arts and comes back and solves a whole bunch of crimes. And then Chanak is this indigenous Mexican that lives in the jungle where there's still jungle. And um, he kind of sometimes goes to the city and solves crimes and then goes back to his traditional ways. Both of those characters are about how every single one of us has the capacity to be superhuman, to have those abilities, to like make yourself stronger, to make yourself wiser, to make yourself, to access that in yourself to improve the world, right? And so we, ju we just choose not to out of whatever emotion we choose not to, right? But Kaliman doesn't have any superpowers per se, right? But he has the power of self-actuation because he knows how to meditate, right? And what this is not how meditation works like right. about in real life at right. all, right? But he can will himself stronger and like think about how strong he can be. And then he actually does work out, right? You know? And so he happens yeah. to be pretty strong. And so all of a sudden he's stronger than, all, mo than most people and people are, you know, impressed or scared by him. And they either just run away or try to fight him. But, you know, he knows how to fight so he can do these things. He trained himself into this justice seeker character right? right and chanok lives in the jungle survives you know fights with tigers all the time so whenever there's a criminal trying to punch him in the face like dude i was with a tiger earlier <laughs> right it's like calm down just give me the money i'll just go return it to the bank um they're simpler naive characters but i feel like i feel like they tell you as a person that you can if you try be more like Superman. So how do we, though, change that narrative? You and I, you know, we're creative people. We're going to make some new books. Yeah. Even this story, that, like even the example you gave where he returns the money to the bank, yeah. right? Even our, at our greatest, our superhero stories are still capitalist colonizer stories. 
right? right. Like yeah. no matter what you do, make yeah. sure you get that money back to the bank yeah. because that's where it belongs. I think what we were lacking is nuance. I think that Superman, like he came out of nuance, right? He was yeah. a Jewish immigrant that created it that felt this dude should exist, right? Yeah. He's an immigrant, right? That just happens to be, you know, like today Samson and like he fights back. Yeah. Um, the nuance disappeared because the market didn't want it. Right? right, and I think, and I, they, like, one of the reasons I never, I didn't continue with the Magnetic Ghost is because there's so much nuance in the comic book with the cultural background and like the post-colonial, you know, status of Mexico and all right. these new immigrants coming into the old Mexico that has been so romantic. How will you fit that into a hundred pages of comics, right? And it's complicated, yeah. right? But if if we can put that into our work, then all of a sudden that inclusion is going to fight back against our perception, uh, which I think is necessary. We do live in a post-colonial country, right? Yeah. Very obviously. And I came from an even more post-colonial country than Canada, where in Canada, the indigenous people still exist. Right. Uh, in Mexico, they got decimated, right? Or they got ingested into the I part indigenous Mexican, right? Like right. everybody in Mexico. Um, but now they're a legend. They're not people that you can go talk to Right. Right. So how do we how do we decolonize storytelling without nuance? Ladies and gentlemen, this incredible conversation <laughs> uh, has been a um, unexpected uh, high point in the podcast. I may have to edit out where I picked favorites, but perhaps not. Um, we have been here talking with a filmmaker, uh, a philosopher, a musician. Uh, Jorge, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. And I feel like this conversation definitely requires a part two, so to be continued. Anytime. Anytime. Until then, I encourage all of you to join the fight and make comics. Mm -hmm.